Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, as we open up your scriptures, Lord, we're just praying that you give us understanding, Lord God, from your word. God, will you speak to my brothers and sisters, God, as you just ministered to me this weekend, Father God, pouring into my heart, Father. I pray that you open your eyes, God, so that we can see your truths, God, that we be equipped to fight the battle, God, that we see you in a much more better light, God, that we fall more in love with you for who you are, Lord. You are so awesome. You are so worthy. God, thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for allowing us to be here in our right mind. God, serving you and praising you, living for you and your glory in your name. God, decrease me, increase yourself, God, as we go forward today in your word. In Jesus name. Amen. Ah, Lord. Brothers and sisters, today, as Pastor Brian was saying earlier, um, I'm, I'm excited about this text because it's my favorite psalm. So it's not my favorite verse in the Bible or a book of the Bible. It's my favorite Old Testament. <laughs> I guess you clarification. My favorite verse of the Bible is the book of Romans. If you got that, my favorite verse is the book of Romans. I can't just pick one. Um, so that's the book of Romans. But today we get to do Psalms 42. This is my favorite psalm. I love this psalm. Um, this, this psalm is so awesome. It has rocked me to sleep at times. It has fed my soul. Um, I love it because it, it's a real person dealing with real life issues. And it's about a person dealing with depression and sadness. And as some of you know, that's one of the things I, I struggled with. I had a fight or a battle with and still fight with. And, um, I just I just love the the instruction, the encouragement that we get from this psalm. And so we're going to look at today Psalm 42. We're going to read the entire thing, Psalms uh, verses 1 through 11. And just a little history um in, in uh the Jewish culture, Psalms 42 and Psalms 43 it's, it's one psalm, but it was it was split. So in some books it's really literally one psalm. And you can tell because the the same chorus or refrain is repeated in Psalms 43 as it is in Psalms 42. And so some people read them together, but for the sake of time we're just going to do Psalms 42 verses 1 through 11. And the topic, if you will, it's fighting off spiritual depression, fighting off sadness. Um, so that's what we're going to look at today. Look at the psalmist, his fight, his battle, what encouragement we can get from it in our fight as we live on this earth, this world. So Psalms 42, I'm going to read it all from verses 1 through 11, and we'll come back and discuss. Verse 1, it says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival or holy day. If you got the King James Version. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me or disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and from the Mount Mazar. 
Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? At a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him the help of my countenance and my God. Amen. If you have a study Bible, your, your title may say, mine says, for example, thirsting for God in trouble and in and, and exile. And it says, for the choir director, a masculine of the sons of Korah. You see that? You have that in your Bible? The sons of Korah. And so this, this psalm is being identified, or the writer is, is maybe the sons of Korah. But among commentators, there's kind of some debate over who actually wrote this. Even though it says the sons of Korah, some say David may have wrote it and gave it to the sons of Korah. Because the sons of Korah, um, they were the choir singers. They are the ones who would write these beautiful songs. And so some say that David may have wrote this psalm and gave it to the choir, uh, the sons of Korah. And so, it's kind of some debate on who exactly wrote this. Was it David or the sons of Korah? But from my understanding and, and how I read this, and I'll tell you why when we get to a little, little bit later, I think it's the, the sons of Korah. And just let me give you a little background on Korah. Um, Korah kind of, he descends from the, from the tribe of Levi. And Levi had the three sons that formed the priesthood, right? You had Aaron. Remember Aaron, it was Aaron and his sons that they are the ones who were the priests and they are the ones who would do the, these, the sacrifices and, and, uh, the high priest that came from the line of Aaron. The high priest was the one that was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. But Levi had these other sons. And while Aaron got the right to go into the Holy of Holies and do the, the sacrifices, Levi's other sons, uh, it was, uh, Meritites, Mir- the Gisharites. One of their duties was taking down the temple. And transporting the, 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 the base of it, the poles and, and the curtains and all those different things. And so one of his sons, that was their sole responsibility. But when it came to Kor, their responsibility, or Korath, their responsibility was transporting all the holy items in the temple. So for example, the lampstand and, and the, uh, the table and all of those, the altar, all of those things, that was their sole responsibility. They would transport this as the, the children of Israel would move the camp in the Old Testament and they would set up different places. Their role, Korah, was to transport these items that was in the holy place. And here's the crazy thing about it. They couldn't actually touch those items because those items were set apart and only the priest could touch those items. So the priest would go in, wrap those items in a special garment, and then they would give it to Korah and then they would carry those things by hand because these were God's holy things. So some of the others, they could put their their items in carts and different things like that. But Korah, they actually had to carry theirs by hand because these were the holy objects in the sanctuary. And so that is, that is core. That's who they are. And later on down the line, they became choir singers and they would lead the children of Israel in these beautiful songs. And so that's why this song is called a, um, a masculine meaning instruction 
or teaching of the sons of Korah. And so that's just a little background on here. But as we look at this psalm, again, I, I, I like this psalm because it shows us that the people of God were people. Because sometimes we can read our Bibles, right? And you see Paul. And you're like, Paul is just superhuman. I could never be Paul, right? And, and you look at all these great men of God in the scriptures, and you're like, they're not normal, right? You're like, they're just superhuman. And, but then when you see these Psalms 42, you're like, wow, they are human. He's like me. He's sad and depressed. And so that's why I like this Psalm, because it kind of humanizes some of the people in the Bible, because we sometimes build them up so big because they do great things, but they're only doing those great things by the work of the Holy Spirit. So this is one of the reasons I love this Psalm. Now let's look at the first verse. He says, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come before God? So think about this. He says, as the deer pants or longs for the water brook. Why does a deer pant or long for the water brook? A deer pants and longs for water because they need water to survive. And oftentimes a deer, maybe he's running for his life. Maybe he has an enemy chasing him and he's running really fast and he's tired. And so he's panting for the water brook. Or maybe a deer sometimes is he's just playing with his other deer friend. I don't know what they call him, but say he's playing with his other deer friend and he's having so much fun. And so he's out of breath and he's panting for the water brook. Those are some of the reasons why a deer may pant for the water brook or long for the water brook. And, and I think that the, the reason why the psalmist uses this is because he's thinking of a deer who's running for his life and who needs this water to survive. He, he needs this, this, this source of nutrients. And so he's saying he's using this deer as an example. But why else does a deer pant for the water brook, would you say? A deer pants for the water brooks because this deer has tasted water before and he knows that water quenches the thirst that he has. He knows that water is this source that if I'm thirsting for something, I'm greatly longing for something. Water is this source that refreshes me. It nourishes me. It it keeps me going. It gives me the strength to go forward. So the psalmist is using this deer and saying, just like that deer is panting for the water brook because he may need this water if he's in trouble, or just like this deer has tasted this water and he knows that this water um, quenches his thirst. He's saying, so is the state of my soul right now, God. My soul right now is thirsting for you. It is, it is desiring you. I need you right now. See, a deer pants for the water brook because the water brook is nowhere around and he so wants it. So the psalmist is saying the same thing here. He's saying, God, I am desiring you. I'm thirsting for you. I want you right now because I'm away from you. I'm distant from you right now. And so I'm just like this deer. I am longing for you, God. It's kind of like if you are really hungry and you, you walk into your house and your wife or your husband is making that favorite meal for you and you begin to smell it and, and, and it smells so good and you begin to long for it, right? Because you're already hungry and you, you know how your wife or your husband makes it and you know how it tastes because you've had it many times before and so you walk in the house and you're smelling it and you're like, I'm longing for this. I'm hungry and this is what I want. So that's what the psalmist is trying to describe here. He's trying to describe the sincerity of his heart for God. God right now, how much he is in need for God right now. 
because he's tasted God. The psalmist here has already done Psalms 34, 8, where it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. The psalmist has already tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He's already encountered. And now he's saying, God, I just want more of you because he's in a situation where he doesn't feel that God is around. He feels as if God is not there. He feels that God is nowhere. So he, he is now thirsting for God. He wants more of God. And now some of you are saying, but I know this, this psalmist is thirsting for God, but couldn't he just go and pray and, and get his fill there? Couldn't he just go and, and, and just, and just drink water there? See, one of the things you got to understand, I want to show you something very important. In verse number two, he says that he's thirsting for God, but then he says, when shall I come and appear before God? There's a reason why he's saying, when shall I come and appear and appear before God? See, many commentators believe that when he says, when shall I come and appear before God? He's not speaking from an end time standpoint or eschatological standpoint. He's not talking about when he's going to come and stand before God on judgment. They are in heaven. But he's talking about actually being in the physical presence of God here on earth. And so when, when he said that, he's saying, God, I just want to be in your physical presence. I just want to be where you are. And when you read that, it, it seems like, OK, if you just want to be where God is, if you're thirsting for God, if you feel that God is far away, couldn't you just pray and just go and be in the presence of God? And, and couldn't you just he just have his Holy Spirit fill you with his goodness and you wouldn't be longing for him anymore? And the answer is no. See, you got to understand during this period, during the old covenant, God's presence was only experienced or largely experienced in the temple in Jerusalem. See, it wasn't like we have it here today. That's why he's longing. This, this, this writer, he's away from Jerusalem. He's living in exile. And so he's desiring to be in the presence of God. He's desiring to be in the temple. Because at the temples where you begin to experience the presence of God. Remember, the Holy Spirit was not freely given like it is to, for us today. So for, in order for him to be where God is, he has to go to Jerusalem and he has to go to the temple. So he's saying, I just want to be there. When shall I go and appear before God? I just want to be at the place where God is because he's not there now. Because you can only experience God at that place. That is why in verses like uh, Ezekiel chapter 10, you see the spirit or the presence of God leaving the temple because the people were disobedient because God's presence was thought to to dwell there. Another example of this is in uh, John chapter four. Do you remember Jesus with the woman at the well? What happened? Jesus encounters this woman at the well and, and, and she says that um, she says that my people, we worship God here at this mountain. But you and your people, you say you go and worship God in Jerusalem. And then Jesus is like, no, no, no. There's a time coming and now is where the true worshiper is going to worship God in spirit and truth. You're no longer going to be going to a mountain. It's no longer going to be at this physical place in Jerusalem, but you're going to worship now by the spirit and truth, which is me. And so, see, they didn't have that at the time. And that's why Jesus, he comes in and he brings in a, a new economy. So when we think about this person here longing for the presence of God, longing to be with God, we got to look at it from his perspective. He's not in the New Testament. He's not under the new covenant. He's under the old covenant. 
And so since he's away from the temple, since he's away from the place of God, he's saying, I just want to be where God is. And not only this, guess what? During this Old Testament period, only the high priest could actually go into the holies of holy and be in the presence of God. So he couldn't even fully get fully in the presence of God. He can go and worship in the temple where they prayed, but he could never enter into the presence of God. Only the high priest could do that. And that was once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And when that high priest would go in, he would go in carrying blood for his sins and the sins of the people. So you got to understand that right now you have this special grace here in the New Covenant where you can go into the presence of God boldly. You can go in prayer knowing that your sins have been forgiven, knowing that you stand righteous because of Jesus Christ. See, they couldn't do that. They didn't have the confidence that you can have now. They thought they needed bulls and goats, and even then they still weren't sure. But you, under this new covenant, you have a new grace. And not only that, when you stand before God on that day, you can stand with a sort of boldness, knowing that your sin debt has been paid by Jesus, that you are no longer an enemy of God, but a friend of God. See, that is the hope that we have through Christ. But this thought is totally foreign to the psalmist here. So you got to read it in that context. It's totally foreign. So for him, he is longing, he is thirsting to be where God is. And here's the truth of the matter. If we're being honest, from time to time in our life, we feel just like this psalmist. We feel down. We feel like, God, where are you? I'm crying out to you, God. I'm praying. I'm reading my Bible. I'm doing all of these things. But God, I, I just don't feel your presence. God, I, I'm thirsting for you. God, I'm going to church. I'm, I'm singing a song and I'm going into church and I'm leaving. and I'm feeling the same way. See, we get just like this psalmist at times. We get into this form of spiritual depression, they call it, where you're just longing for God and you don't even feel his presence. You don't even hear his voice. Matter of fact, there's a book by a famous pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote an entire book on spiritual uh, depression and he used Psalms 42 as the basis for his book on how to fight and deal with it. Because believers, we go through it. We go through this. It feels like God is so far away and God is so distant at times in our lives. When we're crying out to the Lord, when we're thirsting for God, just like that deer, it feels like he's just so far away. So we are just like this psalmist here. We thirst for God and we want him. But as you keep going down in the text, I want to get you to verse three. He says that my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So his sadness, his depression is not just a standalone depression. He said, I'm crying in the daytime and I'm crying at night. And the reason for his crying is because he wants more of God. And he doesn't feel like God is around. He feels like God is not there. He feels that God is so far away. So he's crying and saying, God, at, in the daytime when the sun is out, I'm crying. And when I'm at night in my bed, I'm crying because I'm just so sad. I'm so down. God, I, I feel like you're nowhere around. I just need you. See, he's lamenting. He's pouring out his soul here because he feels so alone. Deep, deep sadness. 
And I, w- I want to bring you somewhere. Go to verse 9. We're just going to jump over to verse 9 real quick. I want to show you something along with this morning. In verse 9, look what he says here. He says, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Right? Because he's in this place, he's in this deep sadness, and he feels that God has forgotten me. Just like we feel at times when we're praying out to God, we're asking for things, and it seems like our prayers are just hitting the ceiling, that they're going nowhere, and that God is nowhere to be found. So he's saying that, God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And then he says, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Or while my mourning, while the enemy is oppressing me, how some other versions may have it read. I want you to pay close attention to the oppression that he's identifying here. Because he says that he's mourning, and he's mourning because of the oppression of the enemy. Now, in this entire psalm, there's nothing mentioned about slavery. There's nothing mentioned about poll tax. It's not that type of oppression. But as you go to the next verse, you're going to see the type of oppression that he is receiving from the enemy. Look what he says here. Verse 10, he says, as a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So what type of oppression is the enemy giving to him? The oppression that he is experiencing from the enemy is guess what? It is words. It is words. It's the words of the enemy. He says in this text that the words that they say, it feels like somebody has got a sledgehammer and they just crack my bones. That's how words feel at times when you are so deep, so down, so depressed. If somebody says one little word, it just feels like they just put a knife in your heart sometimes, like they're shattering your bones. And so that's what he's saying right here. They're saying, where's my, where's your God? See, he's already feeling like, God, where are you? And now you got these enemies coming over here, making fun of you and reviling you and saying, where's your God? And now those words, they're, they feel like a shattering of his bones. That's how deep and powerful words are. Words can mess us up. These words of the enemy, what they're saying, how they're, they're throwing out there, it, it is just killing him. As he sit there longing for God, he's longing and they're watching him cry day and night. And now they're making fun of him. And, and he said, it just feels like it's the shattering of my bones. The words of the enemy. And here's the thing. The truth is sometimes in our dark, deep state and that spiritual sadness and depression, our enemy is not external. Not always external somebody else, but that enemy could be our own selves. Speaking these same words, oppressing our own self with these negative words, with these lying words. See, yes, there is verbal abuse out there and verbal oppression out there, but our main enemy sometimes is internal. We are the ones doing this to ourselves. And I want to give you a quote, matter of fact, from Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on spiritual depression. He says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are there talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. 
Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. That is so real. That's a good statement. He, I agree with 95% of that. Only part I'm kind of like, ah, he says that um, you don't know where they originated from. I believe they originate from us and our thinking, our wrong words. And that is largely one of our biggest fights. It's those thoughts that we're thinking, those negative things. We're, as opposed to preaching to ourselves the gospel, the good news, we're listening to our negative self. We're listening to those lies of the enemy. We're listening to those things. And that drives us deeper, deeper, and deeper into our sadness, our deep depression. See, life and death really is in the power of the tongue. We can speak life to people or we can build up people. You can destroy, tear down, or you can build up life. I think it's, it, it speaks to James 3, 6, where he says, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiled the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. That tongue, what we say to others, to ourselves, that can be the enemy. That can be the one that's keeping us oppressed, keeping us down. So in your fight against depression or spiritual sadness, you got to ask yourself, who is the one doing that talk in your life? If it's a person, then maybe you have to distance yourself from that person for a time. If it's yourself, then maybe you need to start speaking life to yourself now. Start speaking life to yourself. I'm supposed to just listening to yourself talk and speak all of those things that bring you deeper and deeper. Maybe it's time for you to start speaking life to yourself. The word of God to yourself. The gospel to yourself. As we pick it back up here in Psalms, I want to bring you to verse 4. Because we see in verse 3, he's crying day and night, and the enemy is, is constantly reviling him. But I want to show you now what he does to combat that. He says, verse 4, These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving with a multitude that kept Holy day. So what is he talking about here? What is he doing? Now he's starting to go back in his mind and he's thinking about that time when his thirst for God was satisfied. Now he's going back in his mind to combat what the enemy is doing. He's going back in his mind and he's thinking of that time when his thirst for God was satisfied, when he's leading a group of believers to the house of God in praise and worship. See, the reason he says when I led a throne is because in the Jewish culture, when they would make their, their, their um, pilgrimages up to Jerusalem, remember, Jerusalem is set up on a hill. And so as you went to Jerusalem, you would go up this hill and you would sing these songs called Songs of Ascent. And so as they were going up the hill, they're singing these praise and worship songs, Songs of Ascent. And not only that, when, when the priest would go and lead the people up to the temple, because again, the temple was also set on the hill. As they would walk up the steps, they would be singing these songs of ascent. And songs of ascent, if you look in your Bible, I want to show you this. Go to Psalms 20. Just go to Psalms 20. Song of David. Okay, there should be a little title. Psalms 20 do Psalms 134, all songs of ascent. Oh, 120? Yeah, 120. Oh, I'm sorry, 120. Yeah. 120, 120. 
There you go. You have that? So Psalms 120 through 134, those are all songs of ascent. And so those are the songs that they would sing as they went up to Jerusalem on their pilgrimage. As they walked up, they would sing these praise and worship songs. As they went up to the temple, they would sing these songs and a praise. And so the psalmist here, this is why I believe he's a song of Korah. He's saying that I used to be the leader of that. So he was the one actually leading the group of believers to the house of God, singing the songs. See, this is not just a regular person here that's longing for God. This is not like a person who has never really encountered God. This is a person who has known God and had a relationship with God, but now is in this place where he's like, God, where are you? See, even believers that are mature in Christ can get to these places where you just feel like, God, I don't, God, I've been walking with you for 20 years. God, I've been walking with you for 15 years, but now it feels like you're just not there. You're not hearing my prayers. God, I, I feel so alone. See, this is not a rookie. This is a person who's leading a group of believers to the house of God, and he's feeling a moment of sadness here, feeling like God is nowhere around. And that just hits me in my heart because I, I get it. I've been there. You've all been there where you just felt like God's presence is just nowhere around. And so what does he say here in verse four? He says, as I remember these things, the times when he was walking with God and his thirst was being satisfied, he says, I pour out my soul within me. That means he's pouring out his heart to God as he thinks about this time and this great fellowship he had with the Lord. And now he's in this situation where he doesn't feel God. And so he says, when I think about these things, I just pour out. It makes me want to be more in grief. I just pour out my soul. And brothers and sisters, that is something that we as believers have to do in our moments of sadness. We can't act like everything is just all right. Like you just got it together, but there's times where you have to just pour out your soul to the Lord saying, God, I need you. God, speak to me. Lord, come and just fill me. We can't always stay so just reserved. There's moments where you come to this place where it's like, God, I need you. I, I need to feel your presence. I'm pouring out my spirit. I'm pouring out my soul right now because I'm in such anguish, God, because I don't feel you. And I, and I so need you just like that deer needs the water brook. And God, where are you? Why have you forgotten me? That's the moment of how believers feels. And this makes me think about Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel. You remember Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel? Hannah wanted what? A son. She was barren. She wanted a baby. But the Lord had closed her womb, the scripture says. But Hannah had this rival. And this rival would provoke Hannah, the scripture says, to irritation because God closed her womb. I hope you're seeing the, the comparison here. The psalmist here in Psalms 42, he's away from God. He's missing God. He wants God. And his enemy is oppressing him by reviling him with these words and trying to keep him down. Hannah, she wants a baby. She's sad. 
her enemy, her rivals now using words again to provoke her to keep her upset. Do you see what I mean by words and what it could do to a person? Same thing with Hannah, same thing with the psalmist. The enemy constantly reviling and saying all these words to mess you up, to throw you off, to get you down. And so that's what's happening here. But with Hannah, what, what I love about Hannah is Hannah goes to the, the temple and she goes and she begins to pray. And she begins to pray in such a way that it's not ordinary that the priest comes and he thinks that she's drunk. Because her prayer is so unordinary, it's so unlike what they have experienced. Why? Because she is in anguish. The scripture says, she says that my soul is oppressed. And so when the priest comes and says, Hannah, what, stop drinking. She says, no, I'm not drinking, but I have been pouring out my soul to the Lord. Pouring out my soul. See, that is what we must do, my brothers and sisters, in your fight for in sadness and depression. We cannot sit there, but there's times where you just got to go and pour out your soul. Hannah was praying a way that people normally don't pray in her days. She was praying different. Why? Because she was desperate. She was desperate for God. She wanted him to move in her life. She wanted this baby, so she's pouring out her soul. And that's what you must do. Pour out your soul. That's one of the tips number one for fighting the spiritual battle against sadness and depression is pouring out your soul to the Lord. Pour out your soul. Don't be fake. Don't act like you got it all together. Don't act like it's just all good when it's really not. But you pour out your soul. And guess what? If you got a good brother and sister in Christ, the Bible says we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those that mourn. You go get a brother and sister and you guys pour out your soul together to the Lord. That's why we sing this song this morning. I need you. You need me. I pray for you. You pray for me. That is what this body is about. When your brother or sister is grieving, yes, you say, I'm going to pray for you, but I'm going to just go. I'm going to go grieve with you. As you're pouring out your soul, I'm going to pour out my soul for you because I love you. And how you feel that pain, I'm feeling that same way. See, that is how the body works. We pour out together. So. Pour out your spirit in this battle against sadness, this battle against depression. But what can't be missed about the psalmist here in Psalms 22, and it's pouring out to the Lord, is the aim of his pouring out. Because the reason that he's pouring out to God is because he wants more of God and he's away from God. Now, this psalmist is probably away from his family if he has a family. He's away from his property if he has a property. But in this psalm, he's not mentioning family. He's not mentioning house. He's not mentioning any of those things. The reason he's pouring out is because his soul wants more of God. That's the objective of his pouring out. It is, it is none of those other things. All throughout this psalm, it's like, I just want more of you, God. Yes, I'm away from all of this other stuff. I'm in a foreign land. I have my enemies that are oppressing me. Yes, I'm away from my house. Yes, I'm away from my family. But the thing that I really want more than anything is you, God. You're the source. You're the one I want. So that is what he's longing for. That is what his desire is. He wants to be where God is. He wants to be in his presence. And so he reflects back on his past. 
He reflects back on that moment when he was with God leading the church. But he doesn't just reflect back on when he was leading the church. Look what else he does in verse 6. Look at verse 6. In verse 6 he says, Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan, from the peaks of Hermon, from the Mount of Mazar. These are mountain ranges in Israel. So he's away from Israel. And so now he's reflecting on maybe some encounter he had with God here at this place, or maybe he's just admiring God's creation of what he's done in Israel. But again, he's going back and thinking about those times where he has experienced God. And he's using that to, um, to move him forward in his period of depression and sadness. Notice that the psalmist is not just reflecting on any random happy thought. That's what the world in modern psychology would tell you. When you're feeling bad, you're feeling, you're feeling sad, just go think on something happy. Whether you had a good hamburger at Burger King or maybe you went to the water slide. No, that's not what the psalmist is doing. The psalmist, when he reflects back, he's reflecting back on things that are all God related. Not just happy thoughts. He's reflecting on times where he had encountered God and he's using that to trigger more joy and rejoicing in God. And that is what you must do, my brothers and sisters. There has been something in your life where God has brought you out. There were times when things seemed impossible and God brought you out. Those are the things that you want to reflect on. Those are the things you want to think on in these moments of sadness and deep depression. All God related specific events, not just any random happy events, events where God brought you out. And so the psalmist does that. He reflects back on when he was at the church, when he's leading the group up. He reflects back on where he had met God here in, in Israel. These are all God related things. And if you see the natural flow of this, what happens in verse five, he says, why are you in despair, O oh my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? So after reflecting back on him and his relationship with God when he was going to the church, that leads him to saying, Soul, why are you so despaired in me? Why are you so disturbed within me, soul? Hope in God. Rest in God. You shall yet again praise him. So what is he doing? He's doing what Lloyd-Jones is talking about. As opposed to just listening to his negative self, he's now beginning to preach to himself. He's preaching life to himself. He's saying, so be encouraged. So you've already encountered God before. So hope. You know he's going to bring you out as he has done before. So keep believing. So keep having faith. You have to speak to your soul. You have to speak to yourself in those moments of deep sadness and depression where you want to give up, where you, you feel like God is nowhere around. He, he's speaking to himself, speaking life to himself, to encourage himself. That is what the psalmist is doing here. Brothers and sisters, you have to do the same. This book is used so that the man of God may be equipped so that we may go forward. You have to think on these things. You have to speak this life to yourself, just like the psalmist is doing throughout this book. So we keep going here. We looked at six, how he was in despair. And then he remembers God again from Israel. 
He's away from there and he wants to be back. And then the psalmist brings us here to verse 7, which is to me, it's the depth of this psalm. It's the depth of his sadness. I'm going to read 7 and 8, and I'll explain to you why. He says, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls, and all your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. So 7, he says, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. I don't know if some of you have ever been around a waterfall. Have you heard the power of that thing, right? Have you ever stood next to a waterfall? It's just like, it's just this deep noise, right? You hear that water coming down and it just sounds so deep and so powerful. And so he's describing that and he's saying, God, you're sovereign over that. That's, he said, that's your waterfall. He's talking about how God is sovereign over all this nature. And then he goes and says here that your waves your breakers have rolled over me. Notice he's saying your waves, your breakers. See, the waves and breakers in this Old Testament scripture was a way to describe how deep of a sadness you were in. So what the psalmist is describing, he's describing a person that's kind of like almost drowning. They're in an ocean. Imagine you're in a tsunami and these big waves are just coming and taking you down. Or imagine you're standing under a waterfall and the water's just gushing upon your head where you can't breathe. That is the state of the psalmist. He's trying to describe to you his deep sadness. It feels like he's just lost in the ocean and God's waves are just coming on him and on him and it's just not stopping. And that's how life is sometimes where it just feels like, God, you are allowing this to happen. Your, your waves are just coming upon me, just troubles and trials. And he's saying, God, these are your waves. These are your breakers. So he realized that God is sovereign over all the things that is happening to him. He understands that God could, at the snap of his finger, change his circumstances right away. But God has allowed his waves he have allowed his breakers to overtake him, to overcome him. He allowed him to go through this situation. And as you go from seven and eight, there's a huge cliff there. I call it a cliff. And the reason I call it a huge cliff is because many people, after getting an understanding of verse seven, cannot make it over to verse eight to begin to praise God. When they realize, well, God, you allowed my loved one to pass away. Well, God, you allowed this and that to happen. You allowed this over here to happen. You allowed me to go to this pain. See, many people don't make it over the cliff of chapter seven because when they realize that God is sovereign and God could have chosen, they say, I don't want to believe in God then. I don't believe you. If God is so good, how is he going to allow this trials and these troubles to come upon me? If God is so loving and good, how does he allow this to happen? And so they don't make it over to verse 8 because in verse 8, even though the psalmist is saying, I realize, God, you are allowing me to go through this pain. You allow me to go through this trouble. He still has his hope in God and saying that in the morning, your loving kindness is going to come to me. Who could do that? recognizing that God has allowed these things, these troubles to happen. Yet, in verse 8, you're saying the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And then you're saying his song is going to be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life, just after recognizing that he has allowed his waves and his breakers to overtake me. It's just a cliff there between 7 and 8. And many people fall off that cliff. They don't make it to 8. They lose faith. They throw in the towel. Because that trial was so hard and God allowed him to go through that trial. But the psalmist here, he's continuing. He's not losing faith. 
Even though he feels that God is nowhere around, he feels he's so alone, he knows that his love and kindness is going to come. And he said that his song is going to be with him in the night. That is faith, even in the midst of trials. This kind of reminds me of Job. Job 13, 15. Remember what Job says? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slays me, though he takes me out, it's not going to change my hope from being in him. The psalmist is saying, though your breakers come over me, though your waves are happening, I'm still going to praise you. I'm not losing my faith. I'm still hoping in you. And we have to remind ourselves that troubles are not going to last always. Morning is coming. Yes, it's tough now. Yes, it feels down now. Yes, it's hard now. But it's not going to last always. His love and kindness is going to come. You got to just keep going through the trial. Like the psalmist, reflecting on God's goodness, reflecting on those times where your thirst was quenched and satisfied in God and keeping your hope knowing it's going to come. That's what the psalmist is doing here. We kind of looked at verse 9 already with the oppression of the enemy. So I want to just go to verse 11. So we looked at those verses 9 and 10 already. I want to bring you how he ends this psalm, at least 42 part. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of my countenance. The psalmist here, in despair, still speaking to his soul, but he knows that God is going to bring him through. He says, hope in God, so for I shall yet praise him for the help of my countenance. What the psalmist is doing here in his last verse in 11, he is praising God in advance. He is praising God in advance. He's still in the trial. He's still going through. Pain is still there. He still doesn't feel it, but he knows that God is going to bring him out. He knows his help is coming. And so he's going to yet praise him. He's still going to praise God. See, oftentimes we wait till God brings us a blessing and then we begin to praise. But the psalmist said, no, you start praising God in advance. You start knowing that your God who brought you out before is going to bring you out again. So you can begin praising right now. You got to wait till it comes. You got to wait till you're out of the trial. But you begin to praise him right now because what he has done before, you know that he is faithful over here. So he's going to be faithful over there. So you begin to just praise him. Praise him because you know your help is coming. So that's our battle tip number three when praising God or when going through trials, begin to praise him in advance. You know he's going to continue that good work that he started in you. He's going to finish it even though it feels dark, even though it feels hard, even though you feel like, God, where are you? He's going to bring you out. He will not leave you. So you must keep your faith there. So my brothers and sisters, in this life, we're going to fight. We're going to get to this place like the psalmist where you feel so down, where you feel like, God, why have you forgotten me? Where are you? I'm praying. I don't even hear your voice. I don't feel your presence. Just, just come. But you got to remember, you're not alone. God never leaves. We got to reflect on what he's done. And that brings us hope for the future. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for the battle tips you have given us, Lord Jesus. 
Lord, we're going to praise you even when it doesn't, even though we can't see, God, even when our physical eyes can't see, our faith is seeing fine, God, so we're going to praise you. Even when it seems dark, God, our faith sees you clearly, Lord Jesus. So give us the strength to go through, Father. We're trusting in you in this moment of sadness and depression and deep darkness, God. We know you're there, but our heart thirsts for you. We just want to feel your presence. When we go to prayer, God, we just want to feel your presence, God. When we open your scripture, we just want to know you're right there with us, God. So just speak to us. Speak to our hearts, God. We just need a word from you, and that changes everything, God. So speak to our hearts, Lord. Ah, oh God, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.